0: Welcome to the Classic Anglican Podcast. Join us as we explore classic Anglicanism through thoughtful and informative conversation within the bounds of the Christian faith once received. I'm your host, Canon Zachary. At the 2023 Convocation of the Jurisdiction of the Armed Forces and Chaplaincy, Bishop Derek Jones hosted several training lectures for our chaplains. Over the next few episodes, we'd like to share these excellent talks with our wider listening audience. Today we'll hear from Archdeacon Patrick Lothian on the subject. This is not your ministry, as he shares how we work in the ministry of Christ and His Church.
1: This is about holy orders, so I'm going to start with this prayer uh, from the common prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray, Lord Jesus, you are the good shepherd who cares for his flock. We ask you to bestow upon your church the gifts of the Holy Spirit in abundance and to raise up from among us faithful and able persons called to the ministries of deacon, priest, and bishop. Inspire them to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel and make them holy and loving servants and shepherds of the flock for whom you shed your most precious blood. Grant this for the sake of your love. Amen. The title of this talk, the original title of this talk was This Is Not Your Ministry, but it's stated in the negative, so I adjusted it, and I'm saying this. Um, this, your ministry, is Christ's ministry. You are the steward of it and its agent. You are the steward and agent of Christ's ministry. By the way, this title kind of got away from me as, the, in the, as I wrote this, and um, I struggled to kinda bring it back around, although I think I still wanna keep it. Last night, just so you know, at 2 a.m., I dawned on me how to bring it around, but it involved Taylor Swift, and so I said, after a while, that was a 2 a.m. thought. It had no, uh, it was not cogent, so I, that's the last you'll hear about Taylor Swift this morning. I do think I brought it around in the end. So, this is Christ's ministry. You are its steward and agent, more specifically, I wanna talk about Anglican ministry, our Anglican view of ministry, mainly holy orders, although it does apply to lay chaplains and lay people. Why do we wanna talk about this? Because our identity as Anglican chaplains and holy orders as ordained persons is distinct and different, specifically from other Protestants. We have a different view and if we come from a Protestant background that is not Anglican, we have to adjust. Number two, we talk about this because we, we want to properly do, or in order to properly do Christ's ministry, we must adopt this distinctiveness of how we think about holy orders in ministry. Number three, we want to talk about this because it gives us freedom. In the same way that the lectionary gives us freedom, right? We don't, we don't have to think about, well, what am I going to preach on this Sunday? What scripture am I going to use? It gives us freedom. Our, this view of ministry gives us freedom to do ministry properly. And then number four, we want to talk about this so that we can be stewards of Christ's ministry rightly and biblically. So those are the four reasons of the, for talking about this. Here's my approach, by the way. I am not an academic. I'm a pastor and a preacher, and I feel a little uncomfortable doing academic type stuff. So you're not going to get that, or you'll get a little bit of it, but it's the weakest part of it. Um, And I apologize if this sounds a little bit like a sermon, it's probably going to end up that way, but it is the professional speaking or the public speaking with which I am most comfortable, so we're probably going to get there at some point. My hope, though, is to give you vigor for Christ's ministry, of which you are a steward and an agent, so that you can be amazing chaplains and love what you do. Furthermore, about my approach, you'll see, I don't have slides. Listen, uh, a number of years ago, I was at Residential Tutorial, and Gerald McDermott spoke. And you know what he did? He just gave us his outline. It was like three pages. And he he walked through it for like 90 minutes. And I said, man, I love that. And I've adopted that ever since then. I'm not good at slides. Also, I write things, I finished this you know, three hours ago. Some of you saw me in the lobby at the hotel this morning. And so, if I write slides two weeks ago, they're not—they don't reflect what I, (laughs) what I end up with. And so, I just figured they're not reflective; they'd be a distraction. Hedden Robinson said, "A boring sermon—how does it go? A boring sermon without slides is a boring sermon with slides. Slides make me a lazy communicator because it means I don't have to do good transitions. So I'm—I'm not going to use my slides. Here is my thesis." we are under authority. The bishop is under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, we as priests and deacons are under the authority of the bishop who is under Christ. Bishops are under the authority of Christ and priests and deacons are under the authority of the bishop who is under the authority of Christ, you'll hear it more than once. As Anglicans, we believe this, what I just said, is God's design, it is biblical, and it is historic. That is my thesis. I'll say it again a few times if you didn't get it. I want to address for the moment then the functions of those offices of bishop, priest, and deacon. The main paradigm for a bishop in the scriptures is that of a shepherd. 1 Peter 2.25 identifies Jesus as, anybody know it? the bishop of our souls. Isn't that great? You don't think of it that way. You don't think of Jesus as a bishop, but he's the bishop of our souls, and that is tied in, in the same passage, with Jesus being a shepherd. It is tied in with Jesus being our shepherd, and as a shepherd, which is the main role of a bishop, the main paradigm for a bishop, the bishop is responsible for feeding, caring, watching over the flock that is, God's, that is the people of God's church. He does this by overseeing their care running the church organization, teaching the faith, defending the faith against heresies and attacks from within and without. He disciplines wayward sheep who have strayed from the faith in order to bring them back into the faith. The bishop also guards the church by being the one who examines and oversees examination of candidates for holy orders. Roles, functions of the bishop, the priest's functions are those given to him by the bishop. And... You know, oddly enough, they're much fewer than the list I just gave. They're not very long. They include caring for God's people as sheep of the flock, as an under-shepherd of the bishop, rightly administering the sacraments of holy baptism and holy communion, and preaching the word of God. That's about it, right? I mean, you could kind of sum it up in, in those three things. Deacons assist at the table, proclaim the gospel. They have a special role in caring for the physical needs of God's people, and especially the oft marginalized and forgotten another way to think about these functions of the bishop or I'm of the of the bishop the priest and the deacons of the three holy orders the three offices is to consider the gifts that are given to them at their ordinations or their consecrations a deacon is given a maniple as a sign of your service So you got service he is given a stole as a sign of the yoke of Christ he is given a book of the Gospels and told, Take the authority, to, isn't that interesting? Take the authority to read the Gospel in the church of God and to teach the same. So, three things a maniple, a stole, and a Bible. Really, a book of the Gospels, uh, it says. A priest is given a stole as a sign of the yoke of the Lord, a chasuble, which symbolizes charity. He is anointed with oil of chrism to consecrate the hands that bless the people of God. And he is given a Bible and told, Take authority to preach the word of God and to administer the holy sacraments. Do not forget the trust committed to you as a priest in the church of God. And the bishop is given, and by the way, I'll just reiterate, what I'm doing here is I'm outlining the functions of these offices by way of what we give them at their ordination or their consecration. A bishop is given a Bible with a powerful exhortation. We're going to return to that powerful exhortation later. He is given a staff to symbolize, or and told, actually, to watch over the flock with that staff or crozier. He is anointed on the forehead with oil and to, and to stir up the grace of God. He is given uh, a, a pectoral cross as a reminder of our reconciliation through the cross of Christ. I realized I must have skipped over in my notes the ring. He's given a ring. I don't remember what it symbolizes, but it's in there somewhere. You can look it up right now if you want to. I won't be offended. And he's given a mitre and told when uh, given the mitre, and remember that your authority rests in God's word and Holy Spirit. So those things give us a sense of what the function of those three holy orders is. And it would be good, of course, that we remember those things um, uh, regularly. So we have our thesis. Bishops are under the authority of Christ. And priests and deacons are under the authority of the bishop who is under the authority of Christ. And we have the functions of those offices. Now, I'm going to dive into, but not dive too deeply, into a survey of the offices in the scriptures and in history. By the way, an aside, I'll just pause for a moment. We will have time for discussion. So if you've got questions or even just comments, because I don't know if I can answer many questions, right? Uh, it's kind of like when I, uh, I remember one time, I shouldn't take this aside, but I will, um, I was going to have breakfast and watch football with my brother-in-law uh, and all of his football friend, fan friends, right, at some Mexican bar somewhere in Southern California. And, I, what I, and I'm not a, I, I know football, but I'm not a huge football fan, and they were. And what I, did, what I did is I watched ESPN the night before so that like the next morning I could make a comment like, yeah, you know, Cunningham's really He's doing really well this year. I hope he doesn't get injured or something like that. But if somebody had like prodded me on that, I'd been like, man, that's all the depth I got. You know, I watched ESPN last night. So you can ask me questions at the end, but um, we'll see where that goes, right? I do get a little academic here, not my strong suit. So if it's understandable, if you kind of wane off a little bit, I'll bring you back because I'll state my thesis again, so... A survey of these holy offices or holy orders or the offices in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for priest is zaken, also, or really presbuteros in the Septuagint, elder in Hebrew, it meant chin or beard. So we know where that comes from, right? It's an older man and he had a beard and probably a gray beard. And it was not necessarily... Not necessarily an office or an official thing. It was the older man who was known for his wisdom and insight, relied upon to give counsel, given respect and authority due to his age, a guard of internal order within the jurisdiction of the local area. I think of this as a way to think about when we talk about um, the founding fathers of America. Not an official term. But we talk about them in a a way that we say they were wise men who were brave and courageous and they founded our country. We also know of priests in the Old Testament, specifically the priestly line of Aaron and the Levites that began during the exodus from Egypt. The instructions for the consecration are in Exodus 29, and they conclude with this, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever, thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And we have the priest Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high. He comes, he blesses Abraham, and as you know, the author of Hebrews applies Psalm 110 to our Lord Jesus, and he's saying that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is a reference to his eternal priesthood. Melchizedek comes out of nowhere and disappears. We never really hear about him again, except in the Psalm in Hebrews. It's an eternal priesthood, and that's the nature of Jesus' priesthood. In the Old Testament overseer is used in a few different ways. Um, one way is right oversee, right, and um, so God looking down from above. That verb is applied to God looking down from above. And then two different sections of Numbers four sixteen uh, speak of basically human overseers in that in that way. Uh, four sixteen, and Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest shall have charge of the oil for the light, the fragrant incense, the regular grain offering and the anointing of oil with the oversight of the whole tabernacle and all that is in it, of the sanctuary and its vessels. Notice, what is that person doing? They are overseeing the worship of the church. Numbers 27, 16 to 17, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who goes out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. In other words, you have an overseer, who oversees the priests, essentially, and, and creates order within the worship of the people of God. I don't think I said this. Overseer is the word, right, in the Septuagint Episcopos. And we know that, right? A scope is seen, an epi is over or around. Epi Episcopos is overseer, all right? And when, this is where the word bishop comes from. So skip going to the New Testament. The debate is whether elders and bishops... Presbyteroi and Episcopoi, are interchangeable and synonymous in the New Testament or whether they are distinct roles and offices. The Presbyterians say that they are interchangeable and synonymous. They don't have bishops because they say we have elders. They're the same thing. Therefore, they are governed by Presbyteroi. They're Presbyterians. We argue that those two functions... Our terms, presbyteroi and episcopoi, are distinct in the New Testament, and so we are governed by episcopoi. Our polity is episcopal. And our argument as Anglicans goes one of two ways that those two words, those two offices, were distinct from the very beginning, bishops being intentionally and knowingly identified and consecrated by the apostles to carry on the teaching and guarding of the faith and the shepherding of God's people. You see those times in the New Testament when the apostles appoint a bishop, appoint someone to teach the faith and carry on the apostolic faith. The other argument is that maybe early on that the terms Episcopal, Episcopos, and Presbyteros were interchangeable but that the distinction came very, very quickly as the church grew. And sure enough, in the church fathers, we can see bishops all over the place. Polycarp was made a bishop of Smyrna. Smyrna martyred in 155, that's pretty early. Clement in the year 80 wrote a letter to the Corinthians and said the apostles appointed bishops and deacons. Irenaeus 189, bishops were appointed by the apostles and could be enumerated, that's pretty cool, right? They could be counted, like there was a list, like they knew what it was, right? And then you add the the, uh, testimonies of Tertullian and Cyprian of Carthage. The overwhelming witness of the church fathers is that the church had bishops to pass along the apostolic faith. Bishops are successors to the apostles. That's a big deal for us, by the way. When we talk about apostolic succession, that's what we're talking about. That the apostles, which, by the way, the scriptures say, are the foundation of the church. Um, that the apostles said, "We got to pass this along. Let's find overseers to do that." They appointed bishops. Moving on to the the BCP in Anglican history, the Thirty Nine Articles. What's interesting? There's really only two of them which address bishops, and they take it for granted. They don't argue that we need bishops. There's no saying the church, you know, against the Presbyterians or whatever, or, uh, or the Calvinists or that we need bishops, they just assume it there 's no argument made for it it's, by the way it 's articles thirty six and thirty seven that are addressed, but they take it for granted indeed i don 't know of any you might know of some i don 't know of any deep controversy within Anglicanism that challenged the orders of ministry as we see them as we see them practiced here. We know that those arguments took place with other Protestants, but within anglicanism they 're uh, there has been a. Uh, let's see. I, I have a not, not. Not there has not been a discussion about. There has been a. Okay. I, I, there has been a discussion about the nature and origin of bishops, but not about their need or legitimacy. Okay. I hope I said that right. We can talk all day about like where they come from and how are they rooted in the New Testament and what's their function and all that kind of stuff. But we don't really question that they're there. That that we have them and we should have them. We wouldn't be a have a, an Episcopal form of government if we, did, if we did that, okay? Furthermore, in our Book of Common Prayer, there are two places, they're kind of hidden, right? You might not see them, but there are two places that I think most explicitly outline the role or the authority of the bishop, and that the priests and the deacons are under the authority of the bishop. They are vicars of the bishop in a lot of ways. In The Institution of a Rector, page 513 of our 2019 BCP, it says this simple sentence, the institution of rector in a parish. The bishop holds spiritual oversight is chief pastor for all the churches in his diocese. Very simple sentence, but we live by that. Those churches that have websites and says, you know, you guys know uh, when you go to a website, the first thing I do is I go about our leaders or you go to about us and then our leaders, our team or something like that. And churches that put the bishop right there first they understand this sentence. The, church, the bishop holds spiritual oversight as chief pastor for all the churches in his diocese. Consecration of a place of worship, page 523. The bishop presides at this liturgy. You don't consecrate a parish or a church or a place of worship without a bishop. Now, there's times, right, as even as we as chaplains, we might consecrate a place at the back of a Humvee or a chapel that's used by Wiccans or something like that, which happens, right? Um, we can do that, but if a church is gonna be dedicated it's, and uh, consecrated to God's use, a bishop, the bishop presides at this, at this liturgy. Why, because the Lord gave it to the bishop to be its steward. The bishop gives it to the priests to be the steward for him. That is a survey of the origins in history, so we have covered functions, origins, and history of the offices, and I'll restate our thesis, so if you didn't want to hear the academic part, you can wake up. Bishops are under the authority of Christ, and priests and deacons are under the authority of the bishop who is under the authority of Christ. Now, the so what of all this? Bishops are under the authority of Christ, and priests and deacons are under the authority of the bishop who is under the authority of Christ. Three principles. Number one is the image, the paradigm, the paradigm of the centurion we are under authority and we have authority we as bishops recent (coughs) deacons are under authority and we have authority you know the story of the centurion this story was preached on uh, on July 12 2015 in Dayton Ohio the day that I was ordained to preach I remember it Jesus enters Capernaum um, a centurion comes to him. Lord, my servant is sick. Uh, <clears throat> he's tormented. Jesus says, uh, <clears throat> I will come and heal him. The centurion says this. I'm going to say it in two different versions because it's so good. Um, King James sometimes rings true, right? <clears throat> Hold on, please. I've had a cough, so I'm going to take my fisherman's friend here, and that'll calm me here. Okay. The centurion says, Lord... I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. According to the ESV, it goes like this. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant shall be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So the first part of that, we are under authority. The bishop is under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. We as priests and deacons are under the authority of the bishop who is under Christ. But there is more. As the centurion said, for I am a man under authority having soldiers under me. We are not only under authority, I hope I've established that, that we are under authority. We as priests and deacons are under the authority of the bishop. But we also have Spiritual, we have spiritual authority. Just like the centurion had authority, he was under authority and has authority. Priests and de- the bishop has, bishops have spiritual authority over priests and deacons and over God's people. Priests and deacons have spiritual authority over God's people. And we could have a whole separate conversation about what that means. I'll address it here briefly. Maybe over tobacco and beverages, the discussion could take place about spiritual authority. But I'll say this for now. Well, I'll, I'll explain a little bit, and then I'll, the hard stuff, and then the, kind of the softer stuff. The bishop um, has spiritual authority. This is kind of a hard line, right, authority, to withhold Holy Communion. That's a spiritual authority. The bishop has spiritual authority over the ministry of his priests and deacons. He says, you shall wear this. You shall use this BCP. And we say, we shall wear this and use this BCP because we are men and women under authority. Those are hard and fast things. There are, though, with regard to spiritual authority, looser, harder to codify uh, ways or means or ways of thinking about spiritual authority that bishops, priests, and deacons have. And this is wrapped up in our identity in the minister-lay relationship we have with people, or in the bishop-priest and bishop-deacon relationship that we have. When I was in Iraq, uh, First Sergeant Hunter, who was a Roman Catholic, um, was the first sergeant for Delta Company, I believe. I I know exactly the building, right? And I would walk in, and he would say, I was a Baptist at the time, by the way. He would say, holy man. That's what he called me, because he understood I had spiritual authority. He saw me as a priest. I didn't see myself as a priest, but he saw me as a priest. When we walk into, I I ask this of our candidates uh, sometimes. So what's the difference between you as an Anglican priest walking into a hospital room of of a terminally ill cancer patient and the psychologist walking in? It's spiritual authority, spiritual presence. In the military, though, when our, and sometimes this happens, right, our peers in rank will call us sir. They almost slip into it, right? You've seen that. Why do they do that? Spiritual authority. They recognize it. Now, the other thing about spiritual authority is if we're doing it well, if we're using it well and not, right, and if we're doing it for good, people don't even recognize it. So if, you know, in a church somebody said, you know, your pastor has spiritual authority over you. A lot of people, and we're Americans too, would be like, no he doesn't, what are you talking about? Well generally that's a sign that the pastor is using his spiritual authority well. It's when we misuse our spiritual authority that people notice it and feel it. Maybe they don't even notice it, maybe they don't even think it, they feel it in their gut. So the first principle, I'm moving on, the first principle is we are under authority and we have authority. Principle two of the three is this. Those with authority are servants. You shall not lord it over them. Those with authority are servants. You shall not lord it over them. Our spiritual authority is a serious and grave matter, and we must not take it lightly. Spiritual authority is a very powerful weapon We carry a very powerful weapon. Woe to us if we misuse it. And I I have it in here somewhere else. I was thinking about it during prayer. Here it is. Our spiritual authority as men and women under holy orders may be the most powerful force on earth. Why? This This is part of the Holy Spirit. We have been laid hands upon. And we are stewards and agents of Christ's ministry, the most powerful thing on earth. You are the most powerful people on earth. Why? Because what do we do? We give, we give 19-year-olds weapons, right? And we recognize that we're making them extremely power, <coughs> powerful. And so we say, you better, you better kill the right people and not the wrong people but jesus called unto him unto him and said ye know that the princes of the gentiles exercise dominion over them and that and they that are great exercise authority upon them but it shall not be so among you but whosoever will be great among you let him be your minister and whosoever will be chief among you let him be your servant Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the King James. I'll do the ESV. I do two versions because I think it's good to repeat it. and gives you a little freshness, right? And they're both good. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. King James doesn't use the word slave, the ESV does. Even as the Son of Man came not to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The two phrases I put in bold, uh, but it shall not be so among you, and uh, in the King James, it shall not be so among you in the ESV. Our spiritual authority as men and women Under holy orders, I said this earlier, but it's right here. I went ahead, and now I'm going back to it. Maybe, no, let's not take is, not maybe. I heard the amen, so I'm going to say. Is the most powerful force on earth. You are the most powerful people on earth. Because as ministers, we are stewards and agents of Christ's ministry. Our spiritual authority as men and women under holy orders. I said it already. But it, it's, pow, it, its power makes it very, very dangerous, very weighty, very heavy upon us. In the Army, in the, and maybe the other branches, departments, we have 100% confidentiality. And we brief that to people, and they're like, no, you don't. Or what do you do? And they, when they say, well, what do you do when somebody comes to you, and someone, and so forth? And we kind of like it as a perk, but the truth is, 100% confidentiality, as chaplains, is a very very heavy burden. Right. The power of our ministry, the power of Christ's ministry of which we are agents and stewards is very dangerous, very weighty, very heavy. Woe to us who misuse it, whether by intention or inadvertently. Ain't no church like hurt like church hurt. Ain't no hurt like church hurt. You heard that phrase? When people are subject to a misuse of spiritual authority, the hurt is severe. It drives people away from the Lord. Jesus reserved his harshest warnings for those who do this. By the way, spiritual abuse and spiritual authority is not very clear cut. I just left um, leading a chapel service in which, in a, in a place where a person there, if you, if they said, "Did Patrick, <laughs> you know, spiritually abuse you?" She might say, "Yes." Well, I would say, well, I don't know, I just, I was the leader of the service, you know? She didn't like what I wanted to do. So, uh, this isn't clear cut, by the way. Um, it's it's uh, messy and gray, gray. We carry this heavy, heavy, heavy weight, and we will fail. We will hurt people. So we ask for the mercy of God and the grace of God's people and we pray that God would continually sanctify us to make us more holy and better servants of him and his people. Brings me to my final point. So principle number one, we are under authority. We have authority. Principle number two, those with authority are servants. You shall not lord it over them. Principle number three, you may recognize these words. Considering how weighty this office to which you are called how weighty is this office to which you are called, we must, we must heed the exhortations given to us in our ordination and consecration services. Considering how weighty is this office to which you are called, we must heed the exhortations given to us in our ordination and consecration services. The deacon is exhorted. I'm just going to read them, by the way. And when I read them, by the way, I'm going to count the verbs. So I'm going to do this. I'm not counting them. I'm just, for emphasis, I'm doing this. Exhortation of the Deacon, page 477 to 478 of the BCP. It belongs to the office of a deacon to share in the humility and service of our Lord Jesus Christ for the strengthening of the church, which is his body. You are to read the gospel and proclaim Christ at all times through your service. To instruct both young and old in the catechism and at the direction of the bishop or priest to baptize and preach. That's two. You are to assist the priest in public worship, to guide the intercessions of the congregation, to aid in the administration of holy communion, and to carry the sacrament to those who are kept from the table by illness, infirmity or imprisonment. Furthermore, you are to interpret to the church the needs and concerns of the hopes of the wor- and hopes of the world. It is the deacon's office to encourage and equip the household of God to care for the stranger, to embrace the poor and helpless. To seek them out so that they may be relieved. I'm reading these again, because we must heed them because of the power that we have and the spiritual authority we have. The exhortation to a priest starts on page 488. It's longer. I'm going to read it because it's really, it's really well done. I don't know who wrote it. It was Kramer or somebody else, but man, it's good. You have heard during the church's discernment of your vocation and in the Holy Scriptures themselves, how weighty is this office to which you are called. I now exhort you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be, be is the verb, a messenger, watchman, and steward of the Lord. You are to teach, to warn, to feed, and to provide for the Lord's family and to seek for Christ's sheep who are in the midst of this fallen world, that they may be saved through Christ forever. Remember, how great is this treasure committed to your charge. They are the sheep of Christ for whom he shed his blood. The church and the congregation whom you will serve is his bride, his body. If the church or any of her members is hurt or hindered by your negligence, you must know both the gravity of your fault and the grievous judgment that will result. Therefore, consider the purpose of your ministry to the children of God, Work diligently with your whole heart to bring those in your care into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of God and to maturity in Christ that there may be among you neither error in religion nor immorality in life. Finally, equip and lead your congregation to proclaim tirelessly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And seeing that the demands of this holy office are so great, lay aside all worldly distractions and take care to direct all that you do to this purpose. This next sentence hit me hard on that July 12, 2015. I still remember it. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures that you may show yourself both dutiful and thankful to the Lord and frame your conduct and that of your household and those committed to your care according to the doctrine and discipline of Christ. Know, however, that you cannot accomplish this of yourself. For the will and the ability needed are given by God alone. Therefore, pray earnestly for His Holy Spirit to enlighten your mind and strengthen your resolve. <clears throat> the consecration of a bishop does not have an exhortation per se. There's no equivalent in it in the consecration service. However, you know when the ordinations are given, the Bible—it's a short sentence. When the bishop is given a Bible, it's a paragraph, and it's an, it's an exhortation. So I'm going to read it. It also, you might notice, the previous verbs had no negatives. They were all positive verbs, do, do, do this. The exhortation exhortation to the bishop has three negatives. Page 507. Give heed to reading exhortation and doctrine. Think upon the things contained in this book. Remember, they're given the Bible. Be diligent in them, that your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ may be evident to all. In doing so, you shall save both yourself and those who hear you. Be to the flock of Christ a shepherd, not a wolf. Feed them. Do not devour them. Hold up the weak. Heal the sick. Bind up the broken. Bring back the lapsed and seek the lost. Do not confuse mercy with indifference. So minister discipline that you forget not mercy, that when the chief shepherd appears, you may receive the never-fading crown of glory through Jesus Christ our Lord." Amen. Principle one, we are under authority. We have authority. Principle two, those with authority are servants. You shall not lord it over them. Principle three, considering how weighty is this office to which you are called, we must, we must, we must heed the exhortations given to us in our ordination and consecration services. We are under authority. The bishop is under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, as priests and deacons, are under the authority of the bishop who is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Why all of this? Because it's not your ministry. This is the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, all of us, in this room, from the bishop, and they're not in here, but baby McElrath and baby Clay are stewards and agents of Christ's ministry. It is heavy, it is weighty. There is nothing more powerful on the earth. It can hurt, but it can bring salvation to the lost. Let us follow Jesus closely, therefore, amen.
0: You've been listening to the Classic Anglican Podcast. We look forward to being with you during our next episode. To learn more, join us online at www.anglicanchaplains-etf.org. Until then, stay strong in the Christian faith once received and keep Anglicanism classic